from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Today, we're taking our listeners on a journey across the United States. Why are we doing this? Well, for one, it's Thanksgiving, a time when folks come together to unite over a love of family and a love of food, but also because we're a part of a national team of reporters who are recognizing individuals contributing to their communities, uniting them in divisive times. With all the talk of democracy under threat, we wanted to see what is working. So today, we're bringing you episodes from our national series, Democracy from the Ground Up, thanks to our partners at America Amplified. We'll take you to the farmlands of Eastern Colorado, the plains of South Central Kansas, the bustling streets of urban Florida, and a running track right here in Louisiana. But first, we're taking a trip almost as far north as we can go. In Juneau, Alaska's small capital city, there's a concerning lack of interest in running for local office. Maybe the pandemic just burned everyone out, even when it comes to civic engagement. But at least for one guy in town, the answer is not yet. KTOO's Jennifer Pemberton has the story. In Alaska's small capital city, no one has challenged any of the seats on the city council or the school board this year. That wasn't the case last year. In the fall of 2021, there were seven candidates vying for two seats on the local school board. The delta wave of the pandemic was in full swing, masks were required at schools, and there was suddenly a lot of interest in local government. The candidates' Zoom debate was very contentious. Forced masking, I'm against. I want parents as to make that decision. As pandemics go, this one is not historically as threatening as, say, the Spanish flu or swine flu. Let's just say or it needed a lot of fact-checking. I have a problem. Juno resident polls. Will Muldoon was listening to the debate that night. He didn't like what he heard. I was at home watching the football game and... 25 people called me encouraging me to run. And so that kind of felt like the critical mass for me. So he launched a write-in campaign for the school board less than two weeks before the election. And he won. It was the first time someone in Juneau had won any election as a write-in in almost 30 years. Will Muldoon works as a data analyst for the state of Alaska. He's single and he doesn't have kids, but he really likes so meetings. I have adopted a highway here and I'm required to be on a safety committee for that. I am also on the Disability Law and Center. And he's kind of a civic engagement superhero. I'm, uh, the chair of the Aquatics Board. I'm the vice chair of the Parks Board. And I am the facilities chair for the Board of Education. So six total. That's a lot. <laughs> Probably too many. <laughs> The school board takes the most time and energy, though. The one thing I really didn't fully consider was just how much of your life it takes over. There are the meetings, of course, but there's also homework between the meetings and hours and hours of reading emails each week from parents. People don't usually write in to tell board members they're doing a good job. The tone is often less than civil. It's tough because I think with schools in particular, I feel personally that it's not my job to tell people how to raise their kids or even really have an opinion on that. But it is his job to help make policies informed by the public on the school's role in their kids' lives. So he answers the phone. He responds to the emails. He engages. People often ask him if he enjoys serving on the school board. Enjoy is never the word I, I'm, I'm going to use in my top five adjectives. 
but he thinks the work is valid and important. And he's still enthusiastic about recommending that other people run for local office, too. He was bummed when no one ran against him or anyone else for a seat on the school board this year. It's been a difficult year. Like, I I get choked up thinking about it. But I also wish I was more eloquent in conveying the enrichment and and the fulfillment that comes with that. The stipend for that work in Juneau is $270 a month. It's a pretty thankless job, as is serving on any city board or commission as a volunteer or even as an elected official. But all of these roles are mission critical for democracy. And Muldoon's advice is always going to be to go for it, even if you lose. He ran for school board twice before he won last year, the first time when he was 18 years old and still in school himself. I wish that people would run and not be afraid to lose because losing is not fun that night. It's not fun that week, but it isn't fatal. And if your end goal is to be engaging and advocating for the things that you believe in, losing's a real good door opener for that. In Juno, I'm Jennifer Pemberton, and this is America Amplified. What would Thanksgiving be without the food? The roasted turkey, the candied yams, the cranberry sauce, and my personal favorite, pecan pie. Yes, some of us think of Thanksgiving as a time to stuff our faces until our stomachs ache. But for others, just finding enough food to eat on a daily basis is a struggle. Thankfully, in Wichita, Kansas, one woman took it upon herself to increase food access for those who weren't getting enough to eat. KMUW's Kylie Cameron tells us more. I have people be like, I love you, I love this place. Like, they're so excited and happy. And I think that we owe a lot to Tajani Stalker for really, really starting a bigger conversation that has been happening about food insecurity and the way it affects Wichita and the way it displaces people. And they really receive the donations with a lot of gratitude and I think just feeling like somebody cares about them. Colorful refrigerators are popping up all across Wichita these days full of food for those in need. Tajane Stalker began the project in 2020. I was on Twitter one day, and I saw some folks from the New Jersey, New York area, I think, kind of showing off their newest community fridge, and I've never heard of community fridge before. So they got the idea for the ICT Community Fridge Project. ICT is the Wichita Airport Code, a common nickname for the South Central Kansas City. The idea behind the fridges is simple. Find a welcoming store business, put in a fridge, and then invite the community to fill it up. Now, there's 12 of them, colorfully decorated and painted by local artists. They're located in areas most useful to those struggling with food insecurity, like a boxing gym in a lower-income neighborhood. And at Dead Center Vintage, a clothing store in downtown Wichita. That was the first fridge location. It went from like this community fridge and they added like a pantry and so there's crates there for like non-perishables. They let the community know that they're running low and community members can bring things in. So it's really grown into a huge community effort. Downtown Wichita is a food desert. It's also an area where many people experiencing homelessness live in order to receive necessary services and resources. Kenzie Borland is co-owner at Dead Center Vintage. We know the area that we're in and some of the issues of food scarcity, houselessness, all of that that surround it. And so if we were to turn a blind eye to it, I think we would be pretty poor business owners in that sense. According to a recent study, 25% of the city's nearly 400,000 residents are food insecure. 
That's compared to 10% nationwide. The community fridge is just a band-aid, says Stalker. We need more sustainable solutions to hunger in Wichita. We need grocery stores, we need livable wages, we need all these things. This is just a refrigerator and a business. Like This cannot replace any other sustainable things in the city. Outside of downtown and across the river that divides Wichita, a light pink refrigerator is nestled near the counter at Leslie Coffee Shop. I think coffee shops can get a bad rap for being part of gentrification. Sarah Leslie is the owner. That like a coffee shop is like some harbinger that now all the hipsters are going to roll in and everything's going to be expensive. But that's not really the case. Leslie stocks the fridge weekly with groceries purchased with cash donations from local residents. The fridge has become a community hub. Everybody can coexist. We can still be a thriving business that a lot of people love and feel like is a cool, safe space to come and hang out and spend money. But it's also a place where people can come and get a free cup of coffee if they need it and access the fridge. That's the case for Jennifer and Kane, who are unhoused and utilize the fridge at Leslie. Here's Kane. Boy, if it wasn't for that, Jennifer and I would probably be in some serious trouble. And that's not all that the fridges have done. Stalker, who started the whole project, says they also create healthier communities within the city. Food is really at the intersection of a lot of the things that we are facing. And if we don't have the food and resources we need to thrive, then that community will not thrive and Wichita can't thrive. In Wichita, I'm Kylie Cameron, and this is America Amplified. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Many people associate Colorado as a large sea of dramatic mountain views, complete with a handful of vibrant growing cities. But in eastern Colorado, quite a ways from the Rockies, communities are largely agricultural, less economically fruitful, and as a result, often under-resourced. But in Yuma, a small town in Colorado's far eastern plains, one charismatic musician isn't letting a lack of resources slow him down. As the band teacher for the entire school district, that's right, he shuffles between the middle and high school every day, he's building a community one instrument at a time. KUNC's Ray Solomon tells us more. You really did good. Morning, Brian. He's the main reason like most people go into band. He's always helping out everybody, and so you just kind of look up to him, and then you kind of do the same. He's trying to teach us to stay together. Instead of a class, he wants us to be more of like a family. My name's Rob Zaylor. Being in band and, and having the teachers that I had shaped me and, and turned me into what I hope I am for other kids. If you hear kids making music anywhere in Yuma, Colorado, you probably have Robert Zaylor to thank. He's the instrumental music teacher for the school district. Okay, low brass, are you ready? I'll ever be. His first class of the day is the main event, high school band. Let's go just with a nice, easy warm-up, half note. Yuma is a small town of about 3,500 people on Colorado's far eastern plains, right in the middle of one of the state's most productive agricultural areas. And Robert Zaylor's high school music program is kind of a center of gravity for the town. Kids flock to the band room. Even though it can be difficult, it's like stress relief for me. Anna Chapman started playing the trumpet with Mr. Zaylor in the fifth grade. Now she's a junior, playing in the high school band. It's always just, he's probably making some joke that's I find hilarious, and it's always just the calm in the storm. 
12th grader Jaime Montanez is another fan. Roberto is an awesome teacher. <laughs> when Zaylor first arrived in Yuma 15 years ago, the band was not the institution it is now. Let's see. He keeps a picture on his desk of that very first crop of band students. I think there was 16 in that group, um, just barely enough to fill up the first two rows of the band room. I had that moment of, oh no, what this might not work. But within a few years, he turned an anemic band program on life support into one of the most popular classes in school. It helps that he has a sense of humor. Teenagers love that. But he's so successful with the kids because he doesn't really see his role as just making music with them. As band teacher, his job is building a community. This is a spot and this is a group that kids need and some kids need more than others. He encourages the kids to rely on each other by giving the more advanced students a job to reach back and help their peers get better. You can cherry pick your, your talented kids, your ones who've been in it for longer and say, okay, so I'm gonna find five kids that are maybe a little less confident or much less confident and I'm gonna put them next to a person that they can hear the melody, they can hear what they're supposed to be doing. I feel like that's, that, that's a really safe way for a kid to feel like, okay, I can, now I know what it's supposed to sound like. Drums go to rim so he can really hear notes. One, two, one, and two, and ready, and. Every band practice, he runs through this ritual that demonstrates his philosophy. One by one, each class of musicians goes quiet, starting with the seniors. No seniors, just junior, sophomores, freshmen. They know when it's about to happen. Uh-oh, he's going to start taking people away. My juniors, here we go, sophomores, freshmen. And the whole time you can just see the freshmen's eyes get bigger and bigger and bigger, like, oh no, we're, we're next and we're gonna have to play by ourselves. Goodbye sophomores, here we go, ninthers, here we go. And here we are all together, the cavalry over the hill. Here we are all together. And then I think the most important thing, because it wouldn't work if you didn't do this at the end, is to bring everybody back in together. Now listen to us, this is, this is so much bigger and better when everybody's back in. Good. That's good. In a functioning community, people need to feel connected, like they belong somewhere. They need to feel a sense of purpose and an obligation to each other. That's what the Yuma High School Band practices each morning. In Yuma, Colorado, I'm Ray Solomon, and this is America Amplified. One of the many inequalities highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic was the disparity in healthcare access among different demographics, which has led many African-Americans to be distrustful of the medical system. But in Tampa, Florida, Dr. Lisa Merritt is working to rebuild decades of mistrust after founding the Multicultural Health Institute. WUSF's Matthew Petty tells us how Dr. Merritt isn't just ensuring equitable healthcare, but also inspiring the next generation to think big when it comes to public health. She's like the closest thing to an angel I think I've met, but of course she is just an extraordinary human being at the end of the day. I think that she is probably one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. Dr. Lisa Merritt is the founder and executive director of the Multicultural Health Institute in Sarasota, Florida. She spent her career working to improve healthcare access for minority communities. It's heartbreaking when I have people tell me, I don't like doctors, I don't trust doctors. As a black physician, she gets a first-hand look at the barriers to care. And I have to laugh and look at them and say, you're going to tell me that, and I'm a doctor. Well, you're different, but 
they feel comfortable to be honest with me because that's how people really do feel. When COVID-19 hit Sarasota, MHI sprang into action, tracking the spread of the disease and organising vaccination drives, like this one in March 2021, documented in a video posted to the group's Facebook page. Okay, so I'm out here at Oniko United Methodist Church, and we are so pleased to be here for our second dose clinic, right? And who are these beautiful ladies I have the pleasure of speaking with today? Dr Merritt says MHI was able to look at the data and show how COVID was affecting the community differently in different zip codes. In North Sarasota, where the population is mostly black and Latinx, they found the positivity rate was higher than neighbouring communities. These were the essential workers. These were the people that couldn't sit home and be work from home. These were multi-generational homes. Dr. Merritt says she understands why there's mistrust of healthcare providers from a community that has had first-hand experience with a segregated health system. While vaccines were being sent to gated communities and people's friends, that did not do much to engender further trust in the power structure that rules over people's lives. But she says access to information, testing and vaccines were bigger barriers than mistrust. And then we would do literally hundreds of people on a Saturday and a Sunday at a church or a community center, and we're able to literally level the playing field. In addition to pop-up clinics, information and education sessions, Dr. Merritt mentors future healthcare leaders at the MHI. She says former interns have gone on to become lawyers, doctors, artists, but they all have an interest in public health, like Armand Derrick, who has a bachelor's degree in political science and global health from Sarasota's New College of Florida pandemic kind of just opened my eyes to kind of the large swath of failures that exist kind of at all levels of the public health field. Derek developed a COVID access guide in English and Spanish for MHI, and he helped get people things they needed like information on testing sites or how to use pulse oximeters to measure blood oxygen levels. And it's a very simple intervention tool that saved lives, that saved my my family's lives specifically because I used these same skills I learned at MHI to help them when they were diagnosed with COVID. MHI intern Olympia Fulcher has a degree in computer science. You don't have to be a doctor or an epidemiologist to really make a difference in a public health setting. Fulcher has been building an app so community members who don't have internet access can find useful information about COVID-19 on their phones. Even though I feel like I'm just crunching numbers all day, it really is making an impact in the community. Dr. Merritt says her own career was shaped by great role models. Now she's paying it forward and helping shape the next generation of public health advocates. I'm grateful that I had incredible models and that I'm just part of a link in a chain and I hope to inspire other young people. In Tampa, I'm Matthew Petty. This is America Amplified. Before we wrap up today's show, we want to end with a story right here in Louisiana. In New Iberia, physical therapist Stephanie Lamprez has been coaching and advocating for athletes with disabilities for more than 30 years. Whether she's adjusting kids' racing wheelchairs, helping them find a prosthetic running leg, or teaching them to throw a javelin, she's always on the track, committed to supporting these athletes by any means possible. We first ran the story back in early October. Today, we give it a second listen. If it wasn't for her being a big part of my life, I don't think I would be where I am right now because she helped build my confidence up. She really advocated for people with disabilities to have opportunities like this. And as far as going out of her way for athletes and everything, she 
really and truly did that. I think the fact that she doesn't want to be in the spotlight and would happily keep working from the sidelines without any recognition kind of just goes into it. But, you know, recognition is a good thing to have occasionally. Stephanie Lamperez. I'm a physical therapist in New Iberia. I work with Gumbo Sports, which is a Paralympic sports club. Stephanie has known since her teens that she wanted to be a physical therapist. But it wasn't until after she graduated that she found adaptive sports. When I started working with the school systems, there was an AP teacher who told me, hey, we got a track event coming up. Can you help me with some kids? She needed positioning in their wheelchairs to optimize their ability to participate. And so that was in 1991. And soon, she found her niche as a coach. My skill comes into how do we adapt for that child to be their best, whether it's a racing wheelchair, a throwing chair. What would be their best sport? Looking at the child as a whole, physically, their movement patterns, their spasticity, their strength, and how do we help them to be the best they can? She began coaching with the organization GUMBO, which stands for Games Uniting Minds and Bodies. Today, she's the president. Me being a dwarf, a lot of times dwarfs are pushed to go into Special Olympics, so there's not many dwarves who compete in Paralympic support. Anne-Marie Hebert is a high school senior from Denham Springs, near Baton Rouge. Miss Stephanie taught me a lot about long jump, which I didn't think I could do, but it was just something fun. I met her when I was 10. I call her Mama Steph. Ryan Conley is a native of Farmerville in northern Louisiana. He has cerebral palsy and participated in gumbo for 14 years. Before I ever meet, she would tape me up with that kinesis tape and make sure my muscles are all loose by stretching me. And she would let me ride with her to these meets. If we have a meet that we might be driving 12 hours, they'll all come meet at my house, stay at my house the night before. We all load up in the van and we go drive 12 hours to the meet. In the last 30 years, Stephanie coached, recruited, transported, and advocated for hundreds of athletes with disabilities all across Louisiana including her own children, Nico and Alexandra. Both were born with cerebral palsy, and both have competed at the elite para level. In fact, it was Nico who introduced his mom to another athlete, Hagen Landry, at a high school cross-country meet. Nico Bado actually came up to me after the district meet, and that's when his mom, Stephanie Lamprez, came up to me and had like told me about Paralympics. Hagen, who has dwarfism, was soon introduced to shot put, and Stephanie began bringing him to clinics and meets all across the nation. The meet itself would probably start around 7 sometimes. She'd be there at like 6 o'clock, 6.30, you know, make sure all the athletes are good, running us back and forth from the hotel. I mean, she'd be the, one of the first people there, one of the last to leave. Eventually, Hagen made it to Paralympic trials, and then the 2020 Paralympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. Bring you up to date with the competition, Landry. 13.88. Well, that is a new personal best. <laughs> that day, Hagen walked away with a Paralympic silver medal. To come out with the medal was truly a life-changing experience. And I got back to the village and I sat out on the balcony and I really was just sitting there thinking like, wow, if I wouldn't have ran cross country, Steph would have never found me. And would I have ended up where I'm at? But yeah, I'm really thankful for that. But when Stephanie sees the success of one of her former athletes, she's hardly surprised. They are athletes with a disability, but they don't want to be known as that. They want to be known as an athlete first who happens to have a disability. I always tell them you can do whatever you want. You might have to do it differently. It might take you longer to learn it. We might have to modify it, but you could do it. 
In New Orleans, I'm Alana Schreiber, and this is America Amplified. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our friends at America Amplified for inspiring these stories about dedicated community members. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.